I have started and exited multiple companies. I am an avid investor in early stage companies. I advise some of the hottest startups and have worked with many of the top tech companies across numerous industries. I'm a software developer by trade, but I also have an MBA from Duke University. I seek out companies who defy conventional wisdom to drive innovation in any industry. And in this podcast, I interview the founders of those companies for you. Hello, folks, and thanks for listening into the podcast. I'm excited about today's interview. I was uh, recently introduced to Nina Barnett by a friend and have really been blown away by the conversations that we've had. Um, she's a female founder, she's a young founder, and she's got a really exciting product. So I think all around this is going to be a good one. Uh, you'll hear her story and you'll definitely understand why I'm so excited. She's the CEO of Group, a really cool app that we will talk all about today. Uh, Nina, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to speak to me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Great. So can you explain for the listeners what Group is? Yeah, of course. So Group is an app, and right now it's just an iOS app, but it is an app that aims to create a fun and intuitive and non-invasive way for women on college campuses and in cities, really in all situations, just to stay safe. Um, so our mission is just to create a positive conversation surrounding safety, but obviously the biggest part of our brand is the app. That, that's great. And so um, how did you come up with this app? I, t I take it from the, the use case and everything that there must have been some personal component to it that drove you to want to create this application. Yeah, of course. So I actually had the idea when I was a senior in high school because I was kind of like the mom of my friend group <laughs> and honestly just wanted an easier way to keep track of my friends and, you know, something that was appealing and sort of put it, you know, aside, brush it under the rug a little bit and then went to college and realized that everyone in college kind of thinks that they're invincible, um, including myself when I was in college. And actually had a friend held at gunpoint my freshman year a block away from our dorm and you know found out that i had friends that were sexually assaulted and i didn't think they were doing anything out of the ordinary there was nothing that i thought they deserved anything like that you know so well yeah, i kind they, of they never they never would I, but i also like to point out you're unc chapel hill grad right so not exactly yeah. a dangerous uh, school no city. yeah yeah no exactly i mean people think of chapel hill as the amazing city that it is and i you know was lucky enough that i didn't feel unsafe um most of the time and i was never in a personal situation but because i had close friends like that and like i said i was like the mom of my friends i feel like i always will be um, I just was like, you know, something needs to be done and sort of waited for someone to invent something that would be appealing to an 18 year old. And there just really wasn't anything out there. I mean, there's tons of different resources that you, the university offers, obviously. And UNC was great about educating us with that, but there was nothing that, you know, tied safety to also having fun. 
um, which I think is kind of the biggest discrepancy right now is that everything attached to safety is attached with the worst case scenario and with tragedies and things like that. So I wanted to flip the conversation a little bit and figured I was the best person to do it. That's awesome. So maybe talk a little bit to how, how the application works. Cause when I think of it, of, of safety, I think one thing somebody could do is I could turn on, um, f- share my location with somebody, mm-hmm. but that seems like just kind of a little skeevy to me and a little bit of an invasion of privacy perhaps, and probably not scalable across a group, which ostensibly with a name like group, it's more than one-to-one. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So what the app actually does when you log in, obviously we have it as a free app right now um, for all the users. So we monetize it on a larger scale, but with individual users, it's totally free because we don't think you should ever have to pay for safety. And when a user logs in, they go in and they set safe zones and safe zones can be anything from where someone lives to a friend's house to where you work. If you're a college student, it might be the library, or it could even be a bar or restaurant that you go to regularly. And any of these places are just places you feel comfortable, places that you're familiar with. So if you were in one of those places, no one would be concerned. Mm -hmm. And whenever a user walks in or out of one of those zones, it'll say that they're good or out and about. So again, it's not saying I'm extremely safe or extremely unsafe, but it's changing that status and doing it automatically. So a user never has to take their phone out of their pocket. That's great. Cause so often um, when I'm with a friend and they're leaving to go somewhere, I'll say, text me when you get home. But this kind of takes out that even need to do that. I would just, I could just log in and see their status right away. I take. Yeah, absolutely. And those are totally automatic. And you know, one of our thoughts behind that was there are so many times when people will forget to send that text and say I'm home or you know someone will they'll get home and their phone might die or whatever it might be and they'll just be getting ready for bed or in a lot of cases you know if there's a time difference um, and someone's traveling things like that this sort of eliminates the need to have to do a bunch of steps it really just gives and offers that peace of mind to the user that's updating their status, but also the users on the other end that are looking for that. Um, But yeah, so those are totally automatic, but then users can also go in and say when they're ready to go, which sends out a push notification and they can send out alerts and ready to go can literally mean anything someone wants, you know, it could be ready to go get food. It can be ready to, you know, stop talking to someone, whatever someone wants, you know, we want the ready to go button to make the app an everyday app. We want it to be something that, you know, encourages people to use it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not just in a dark alley at 3am. So do you think users are using that ready to go for non-security related things? Yeah. So I think that a lot of times people use the ready to go to kind of just check in. But also a lot of times that we've heard from users is they'll say, you know, we use the ready to go button at the end of the night. Or, you know, if they're traveling, we have a lot of consultants and people like that that are traveling a lot with coworkers that use the app. And they've said, you know, that's when we use it when we're leaving a client site and things like that to see if maybe there's someone else leaving at the same time. Um, Because you get that push notification and see that someone's ready to go. So that kind of, you know, allows it to be something that I'm not in a horrible situation, but it'd be nice if I had somebody else there. Mm -hmm. Um, So that keeps it pretty every day. And then obviously the alert button is the safety aspect of it. And that will pinpoint your exact location and send it out to all of your active groups um, because you can make groups inactive, um, especially if it's like family or someone that you're not always with and you don't need their groups to be active. But the alert 
is the only time that it's going to pinpoint that location. So obviously that is when you would want it to pinpoint your location, but we kind of made it so that that's the only time it seems like it's invasive, quote unquote, because, you know, we have heard from so many people, especially college students, which was our very original target market, that they don't want someone tracking them all the time. And, you know, especially when someone steps into a college town and has all these new friends that they don't really know that well, you know, you don't want to share that location. Um, and especially, you know, people that are using it with coworkers, they don't want their boss seeing their location, things like that. But it gives people that extra layer of protection um, and gives them the peace of mind to know that their location is shared if something bad's happening. Um, so those are the main functions, but the nice thing is you can do everything from your lock screen, which is definitely my favorite part. And I think probably the highest use case, because then you can set off alerts in less than two seconds. You can say you're ready to go in less than two seconds, whatever it might be that doesn't draw attention to your phone or what you're doing. So that's definitely the highest use case we see is with the lock screen widget. Now, when you do that, when, when you do that, 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 that alert and it gives them the location, do you attach any context to that so that they know, or is the expectation that that person should follow up and call you or should they call the police or what, how do you think about that button being used? And can you maybe speak to some of the, the, some sample use cases of where somebody might want to use that button? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially we did a lot of research on whether we should, you know, attach an SOS sending to the police or whatever it might be, even if it was to a campus police, if we should put that in the software. And what we actually found, especially because this app is really directed towards women, is that most women don't want to think it's the worst case scenario or they're starting to second guess themselves and they think, what if I'm wrong? And if I'm wrong, then you know the police might be mad or whatever it might be. And so we really wanted to challenge the user to trust their intuition and to feel like we're empowering them to trust their intuition. And so we have allowed them to do that by you know bypassing the police, but going straight to the groups. And so when a user sets off an alert to all their active groups, it'll say, for example, if I set off one, it would say, Nina, set off an alert, show my location, it'll say call or text. And that way, the friends or the family of the coworkers have the option to call or text, and then it's up to them. So, you know, if someone wasn't answering through a call or wasn't responding to a text, it's kind of up to them and puts the responsibility back to them. And that's why our tagline is safer together, because we think that this, you know, allows users to be thinking about safety, but not automatically escalating it to it is the worst case scenario rather that when someone's uncomfortable they can set off that alert and they don't have to worry about being wrong yep. um so some so of the use cases maybe be like there's a creepy guy at the bar like yeah <laughs> he keeps looking at me or and, and, and maybe somebody wants you want them to come by and visit or maybe just hey call me so that i can get or it's like a creepy guy is talking to me call me so i can get away from him or yeah so kind of how we've seen it um obviously there's a grand scale of how we see alerts but what we've seen the most is that you know if it's someone creepy talking at the bar or something like that that might be more of a ready to go button because you know it looks casual you're not like i'm in immediate danger but please get me out of this situation type of scenario. But we have seen, um, I actually had a good friend who I was in a group with 
while I was in college that set off an alert when she was walking home from the library. It was like not super late and she just kind of felt uncomfortable with someone walking behind her but didn't want to start talking on the phone or call the police. She just felt like that was a little bit extreme and set off an alert and we happened to be close by a couple of us and walked home with her. And not five minutes later, there was an alert set out through Alert Carolina, which is their alert system, saying that there was actually an armed person on campus right where she was. And so, you know, it was one of those things where, thank goodness she trusted her gut and did that. But she had said, we, you know, I had asked, well, why didn't, why didn't you call the police if you were that worried? And she was like, well, I honestly just, it just looked like a student. I would have never thought that that's what it was. And so, you know, we, you kind of see two extremes, but what we kind of say is, you know, if you're uncomfortable and you would call one of your friends or you would want to call your parents or whatever it might be, um, especially for college students, go ahead and set off that alert. Like this isn't the, oh my gosh, don't cry wolf. This is the, you know, if you're going to cry wolf, you would cry wolf to your friends and your family and your coworkers. And so this kind of, again, empowers the user to be able to do that and not worry about being wrong because those people don't judge them. That's great. That's great. So, um, so, so you mentioned this came out of a need that you felt. Um, how, how did you go about building the app? Do you come from a programming background yourself? So um, I wish. I, um, I actually in college majored in acting and physics with a math minor. So I was like truly scaling all of the different um, areas. Everything but programming. Yeah. And so originally I started with a computer programming minor, but I was too far into the more of the science-y side um, and data collection. And so just decided I would sort of do that later and originally really wanted to program it myself, but kind of had to put that aside and say, you know, this is something that people need right now. And I need to put pride aside and work together with somebody else. So I actually interviewed, I mean, I don't even know how many different developers, freelancers, different development companies. I mean, truly spent an entire summer interviewing people. That's fascinating because this is one of the number one questions that I get asked because I'm a pretty technical guy. I've developed quite a bit of code and, um, and people are always asking me, how do I find a technical co-founder or how do I find somebody to build an app? And a lot of people that aren't technical or from a project management background don't even know where to get started. So how do you even formulate the questions that you want to ask them? I guess the first couple of interviews you're figuring out which questions to even ask maybe? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I was talking to a friend that wants to start an app, which um, seems to be a common thing these days. But um, I was talking to a friend recently and kind of recalling some of my earlier conversations with people. And, you know, the first couple of conversations, I was just like, I don't know how much I should even share about my idea. You know, is this going to be stolen immediately? Should I have a lawyer, but I can't afford a lawyer? I mean, all these different conversations. That's, funny. And, I, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. Other, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> um, and I mean, originally, I literally, I think I Googled and was like, how to build an app if I can't code. And I was like, okay, let's see, you know, through, went through the clickbait, all of it. And then ended up, and I think this is definitely the way to do it, would have saved me a lot of time, you know, like just reached out to family, friends, and people that I knew that were in technical fields or worked with mobile apps. And most of them were not remotely in my sector. They were, you know, fitness or they were 
you know, lifestyle, just things that wouldn't have really fit in. And so they were like super willing to help and really excited to recommend people they had heard of and things like that. And essentially what it came down to, we partnered with a company called Smashing Boxes and they're out of Durham and we're still partnered with them. And I work with their CEO as like one of our advisors. So we work pretty closely closely with them. Great. I'll put them in the show notes, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, they're great. And Nick Jordan is who I work with and he's awesome and actually went to Carolina um, at one point. But he... I didn't wear my Duke shirt. I was going to wear it. <laughs> I know I have my I have my UNC hat I was wearing it and then I switched it out for the company that I climbed Kilimanjaro with but um (laughs) but who I also love but I basically just kind of it ended up when I sat in the meeting with smashing boxes first of all the engineer who sat in on that was you know sketching ideas and was just so pumped about the idea and was like, this is something that needs to be done. And it also came down to, and I think this should come down to on really any business partnership, I could tell that they had morals that aligned with me. And, you know, we had connections outside of, you know, the business world that were in things like ministry or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And that just knowing that, that they were kind of grounded in the same type of morality and also believed in the idea and wanted the idea to succeed, not a, not just wanted to make money is what it came down to and why we ended up choosing them. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I, I agree. If you can get alignment on other things outside of just their pure capabilities, that that helps, helps so, so much. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's great that you were able to find a partner like that. Um, so, so obviously, you're really young still, but even younger back then. Um, <laughs> Outside of the tech, you mentioned being able to reach out to people in tech, maybe in other industries, but they, they know a little bit there and can get you pointed in the right direction. What other type of support network did you have to help you get this thing going? Yeah, so I was so lucky to have two amazing parents that are really supportive of this kind of thing. Um, my dad's in commercial real estate, but is very much so, you know, runs his small firm and then my mom's an artist. And so she has done anything and everything visually. And I mean, it's just the most amazing woman ever. Sorry, she just totally outshined my dad in that. But um, but I think having them too, but then also I think just the environment I was surrounded by at UNC as well really helped with that. I had already started my company when I got plugged into a program called the Adams Apprenticeship and you have to apply for it. And it's 30 students, 15 grad and 15 undergrad from any discipline. So obviously you have a ton of business and um, business school, whether that's undergraduate or graduate, but then, I mean, there are people in the pharmacy school, there were people, journalists, I mean, all over the place, obviously my majors were very weird, but they are, their whole like mantra is to help people avoid the years of trying to figure it out, trying to get into entrepreneurship and helping jumpstart that entrepreneurial career. And having that support group, and I'm still really, really close with a bunch of the people from my cohort and some of the advisors that I had in that. How many companies were in that cohort? You might have mentioned. Um, so there's 30, of, there's 30 of us, mm-hmm. and I would say probably 75% of them either already had a company or were about to start it. And But the whole you know, gist behind it was that people had an entrepreneurial spirit if they didn't yeah. already have a company. Um, 
but so there were 30 companies in it when you like at the same time that you were it wasn't that there's been 30 since inception yeah so that was just my cohort so and then we do the interviewing of the next cohort and they are even more impressive so um and i one of my like best friends just at unc who was a grade below me she ended up in the cohort below and i was just blown away by them um and so I think That's just usually how those things work, like there's a bunch of different, they don't call them incubators, accelerators or whatever mm-hmm. that are industry specific in Charlotte. And you see it by the seventh or eighth generation, you can't even recognize the companies compared to the ones in the first generation. Yeah, it was really cool. And it's interesting because I've also been a part of a couple incubators and I'm in a really awesome one right now, which I'll speak on in like two seconds. But <laughs> Basically, the cool thing about Adam's apprenticeship is it wasn't just, you know, my company, it was also my entrepreneurial spirit in general. And, you know, we did things like we were out in California and talked with some of the older cohorts there and, you know, also had a New York trip where we talked with some of the people that were there. And you also have an access to like 200 plus mentors one of which happened to be Nick at Smashing Boxes, which was so funny because um, I didn't know he was a part of it. And he wrote my recommendation letter, hmm. um, which was probably cheating. But, um, but I think just having those people and just being able to bounce ideas off of them and you know, share resources. Like for example, there's a guy that I think is a genius and his name is Ben Koken. And he had started an influencer marketing company and still runs it. It's called Greensleeve. And I now have all these female founders that are always looking for influencers and things like that. And, um, you know, especially cause he is a small business as well. I always say, well, you know, I know I, I have someone that's got partnerships with Reebok and all these things and he's doing great things. And he just happened to be also 23, 22 and starting his company and just through this program. So it was really, really cool. I thought that was great. That, that is great. So, some of those programs are, are questionable, but the ones that, where you really make meaningful long-term connections and the, the interesting thing will be five, 10 years from now when each of you is on to the next big thing or you've scaled it in a major way and seeing how those relationships uh, continue to build and grow. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, the one I'm a part of now, it's through Vital Voices, which is a really, really amazing nonprofit organization that helps basically women all over the world that are doing incredible things and they're a huge organization, but they started this new leadership incubator for again, like 30 women. And it's all women that either have nonprofits or social impact driven companies and seeing their work, especially during this time and during quarantine and things like that and seeing what they're doing has been so inspiring. And I mean, we have a group chat that I'm not kidding, probably has 100 messages a day. And they're all extremely helpful messages, which is crazy. And, um, you know, that whole cohort and just having all of them to bounce ideas off of, especially as other women, is really amazing. So I'd asked about the support network when you were getting started, and it sounds like you've covered the basis on how that has evolved. Has it evolved further even beyond that since, as you've been going, or is, is that kind of the support network yeah voices the green sleeve adam's apprenticeship yeah yeah so obviously yeah so ben and i keep in touch um and his company green sleeve yeah so he's great um and just like having them also as friends but i think also 
Vital Voices has been incredible. I did an accelerator with New Chip, which was great. And that was totally virtual. And I still, um, I actually just interviewed my advisor from that. What's it and called? New, new Chip? New Chip. They're newer, um, ironically. Um, but, and they're out of Austin, Texas, but they do it virtual and it's pretty cool. And they really help you with funding. Okay. Um, and that's kind of the point of their accelerator. But I was super, super lucky to get accepted into the Female Founder Collective last January, so January 2019. And I would say that movement and that group of women, and I mean, it's thousands of them now, but that has been so beneficial. And um, there's things like Female Founder Collective and Girl Boss is a whole nother thing. And, you know, I went to the Girl Boss Conference last year and became great friends with a girl that's starting this amazing travel company and you know she and i got coffee in new york when she was in new york and she's someone that we both bounce ideas off of and things like that and but the female founder collective is i think doing the best and i mean i just couldn't thank them enough but also just think it's incredible that you know rebecca minkoff was one of the founders of it and you know, I, I was having drinks with her during a workshop and just being able to say that she was like super willing to listen and that going to a full day workshop was extremely helpful is not what you can say about a lot of conferences and things like that. So I think that, I don't know, it's something that I think women especially are, they work so well together. And I think, unfortunately it's taking, you know, a bazillion years to finally figure out that this is how we're the strongest is when we're together and not working against each other. But I think that things like Girl Boss and Female Founder Collective are doing amazing things and have helped my company immensely. No, that's great to hear. I um, recently had Linda Nash um, from Welcome MD. It's her fourth company. She's had three exits, very, very successful female serial entrepreneur. And she talked a lot about the lack of mentorship in the early mm -hmm. going and that all of her mentors were men. And while she was very appreciative and they brought something to bear, it's just not the same as yeah. having those, those female mentors. So it's great to hear. And she's more my age. Mm -hmm. um, it's great to hear that your generation has access to things that she certainly didn't back then. Not yeah. to say that we're doing enough yet, but it is great to hear that there is, is progress there. Um, yeah, I'm curious. Was there a single aha moment when you knew you were going for it? I knew this was. I know this was an idea. It, it kept nagging at you after high school, and then you you had a couple of friends that that had um uh, you know some some violent crimes enacted on them. Was, was there one single moment there where you were like, okay, I've got this? Um, so uh, I don't know if I ever was like, man, I've done it now, but, um, well, I more like that you're going to do it. I yes. Guess. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I was like, that, that, that's an everyday struggle, but, um, but actually, yes. So I'll give him credit. One of my best guy friends, he's like a brother to me, his name's McLean. And he texted, he knew about the idea. He was one of the few people I told, and he had said it was a great idea. I knew him in high school. We went to college together. And he actually texted me a link to an article in December of 2015. And it was a link to an article. And it said, like, the top 10 grossing apps in the app store right now. And, like, half of them were safety apps. And I thought that is really frustrating, mostly because I've, I hadn't even heard of them and, you know, they were just going to be doing this. And it, since then, those apps have unfortunately failed. And he sent it and he said, I don't know why you haven't started the company yet. And 
you know, it's a kind of a classic thing that he would say, just being a good friend. But at the same time, just seeing that link and seeing that those companies that still weren't doing what we needed to be doing were doing really well, I was like, okay, I need to do this. And so I started literally like drawing pictures of what I thought the screens should look like and things like that. And, you know, trying to come up with exactly every single feature that I wanted it to be and sitting down and having meetings with my dad's friends that were in technology. And, you know, most people are pretty willing to help college students. Um, so that was something that I just, I mean, I literally had a sketchbook and I cannot draw. So that was interesting, but yeah, that was probably the aha moment. Does he know that that was your aha moment? I don't think he does, honestly, which is kind of funny. I should probably tell him. (laughs) Just a suggestion. (laughs) So, so what did funding look like along the way? Have you, have you raised money or? Yeah. So we decided to do family friends in the beginning, especially because, this mission of the company is so near and dear to my heart, but also I think can get skewed really easily. And we really wanted to be able to say, you know, like this is the direction this company is going. And especially because we didn't want to start putting ads in the app and we knew that was something that was an easy, easy way of revenue and things like that. So we didn't want to have kind of that looming investor and investors are great. And I don't know why I was so afraid of them in the beginning, but I think that originally, you know, that was, investors are great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but I think that, you know, just really focusing on the mission, we decided to do family and friends and luckily no one's really not passionate about safety. So that went well. And then we ended up this fall, we were going to try and stay self-funded, but just due to, especially now with quarantine and everything, um, we really decided that, you know, this is something that we want to open up. So even though we've kind of already done a round, we're doing more of a pre-seed round, which was supposed to start and close this spring, but we've pushed back till the fall just due to the fact that no one's leaving their houses right now. So, Sure. sure. Um, no, that, that, that's interesting. That is in some ways unfortunate timing, but it, you know, it, it may also be that people decide to go out in droves once they come back and mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. much more important. So, uh, so, so, you know, nothing about developing an app, but you develop an app. I didn't hear anything about a major in finance. So I'm guessing you knew nothing about raising funds. How do you go about putting a friends and family round together? Um, so I basically told my dad, I begged him and I was like, will you be the president of the company and help me figure this out, please? <laughs> and he, cause you know, he knows about that kind of thing. He had to get a background with finance and he also has a psych major, which is helpful. But so we decided just to go kind of with that, but you know, in terms of selling and pitching and all of that is kind of where my acting major came in handy because even though I wasn't putting on a show, it made it very, very easy. Like I don't have any trouble talking about money, which I think is a major thing that women need to work on, mm-hmm. but I don't have an issue talking about money. I don't have an issue saying that I was at the time 17 raising money and just being able to just pitch and present with passion and belief in my company was kind of what we've relied on. And then now going into this pre-seed round, We've had New Chip, which has um, prepped us and, you know, Vital Voices and these other companies that have really set it up um, for how it kind of works. And having some friends that went through funding too, that sort of helped. But I mean, I was literally 
like Googling, <laughs> you know, what am I, how much money am I supposed to be raising? Cause in my mind, I was like, do I raise a thousand dollars, you know, yeah. which was hilarious. Um, but it, it was very much so a lot of Googling, a lot of reading, a lot of talking to other entrepreneurs and, you know, early on, I would, I truly just text a bunch of my guy friends that now work as investment bankers and would just say, Hey, you know, can you give me some price points for some companies that have IPO'd and things like that? You know, yeah. I'm just trying to get a grasp and just reading, you know, different safety companies, their, all of their term sheets and things like that that were being presented or whether it was, you know, their ginormous document right before they IPO'd that was now available online. I would literally just read really boring documents to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> that's great. No, and, and that's a hard one for a lot of people. And even people who have a technical background struggle with that because raising money is a different animal. And, and frankly, raising money, friends and family still requires some knowledge of it. Different knowledge to raise an angel round, different knowledge to raise mm -hmm. a, an, a VC round, and then very different for, for private equity. But a lot of the concepts, I think, are the same. And I think- yeah using the tools that are out there. Investopedia is one that I, I still yeah. go to and I've raised money seven or eight times at this point. So. Yeah, I love Investopedia. I actually, while I was still, the app had launched, the company had launched, I had the probably the best internship ever at um, a company called Carbon out in Redwood City and they're a 3D printing company and I truly think they're the coolest company in the world. It's It was the most amazing place to work and and redwood city is awesome because you're right there at menlo park and uh yeah 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 it was great um and actually ben Koken worked there too which is so funny but um but i worked out there and i was a financial planning and analysis intern which was kind of funny because i didn't know anything about fpna so i did a lot of googling then um but it was something that you know because i had done this stuff with my company, I figured out what to do with them. Um, and, you know, them just being an incredible and amazing company. I mean, I sat down with the CEO, Jody Simone, and literally asked him about his process and figured that was okay. I hope it was. He seemed cool with it, you know, and talked with what I interviewed almost every single, you know, head of division and just was like, hey, what was this like? Because you were on this company when it was five people and now it's 500 people and things like that. And I think that helped a ton. It was probably a little risky, but oh well. No, no, I mean, I, th I think what you're doing is exactly right. And I tell people that just ask questions. All people can yeah. say is no, they're not going to throw you in jail for asking questions. <laughs> exactly. <hire> you, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> most people want to help out. I mean, there's somebody that helped them out and they need to pay it forward themselves. So I'm, I'm yeah. glad to hear that. And I hope I would encourage any of the listeners who are, who are thinking about starting their own company, um, to, to do the same thing because it, everybody has access to these resources that you're talking yeah, about. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's all free. <laughs> so what are your plans for growth? Do you, I, I believe you told me and when we spoke last week that you're, you're in five universities. Do you go for more schools? Do you go into new markets, new products, new use cases? What does growth look like in your mind over the next yeah. years? Once, once we go back to whatever normal becomes. <laughs> yeah, whatever, whenever that is. Um, yeah, I'm usually in New York City, so it might be a while. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so we, the way that we originally planned it is we were like, we're going to spend two years growing the user base. That's what we're going to do. We're going to lose a lot of money and we're just going to do it. And so we did that. Great, successful. And then 
you know, at the end of that, we said, okay, and then we're going to have to really focus on the revenue model because otherwise it's just going to crash and burn. So how we basically price it out is we offer subscription-based models to universities, to employers, to, you know, kind of anyone that would be interested but we offer things like, you know, tracking of the alert analytics, but not ever showing who the user is, that kind of thing. It's more of like time and place um, so that people can improve their safety. We offer the marketing on our end so that it seems more like it's a peer driven um, app rather than something coming top down, especially when it's employers. And then also we offer things like Apple Watch integration, stuff like that, that also keeps this app free for the users. But so obviously uh, the most, you know, duh kind of market would be universities. And so that was who we originally targeted. And that's who we're still trying our best to just merge into because kind of what we run into is that obviously a lot of universities have a million different safety practices and they have other apps that they're using. But what we find is that a lot of these apps that they're investing millions of dollars in, most of the students have never heard of them. And when they have heard of those apps, they don't use them because it's something the university is saying here, please use this. You know, we're putting this on our, whatever it is, brochure for the school. And so we want to say, hey, we love those apps. We want people to be safe. Please use them. But also for the 90% of students that don't want to use that because they don't think safety is relevant to them, we want to give them an app that teaches them about safety and how safety can be used every day. And so that's kind of our approach with universities, but obviously it can just be hard to get in the door. So we sort of started expanding to looking at things like, you know, I have a friend that's a consultant and she said, I go to client sites, you know, 10 states away. And the only person that knows where I am or anything around me is my employer, but I'm not going to say, Hey, here's my location. So why don't I just have my employer use group with me? And so this is something that we kind of started looking at, you know, big consulting firms. And that's sort of the market we're looking at right now is that, we can offer employers the opportunity to be able to say, hey, this is how we're keeping women safe, especially, but all of our employees safe without invading their privacy, which yeah. I think is a really hard line for a lot of employers because they don't want to invade privacy. Everything going on you know, in the past couple of years, they want to make sure that they're respecting people, but they also want to be able to say that they're keeping people safe. So we, you know, this is something that we realized, you know, is something that could be used, especially for people that have traveling jobs. Um, well, I think especially conferences, because in conferences, yeah. there's places you go that you know you're planning to go, and then there's other places, and, and there's a lot of drinking going on, and a yeah. lot of people that you don't know that you're interacting with pretty regularly, and there's probably a bunch of other use cases for that. So, so corporate America has been pretty responsive to this in addition to the universities. Yeah, so it's definitely newer with corporate America, but it's something that we're really hoping um, catches on because I think it's something that women especially are finally being hired more, which is so incredible, but also women still want to feel safe. And I think that that's something that's overlooked kind of easily. Um, and so this is this allows, whether it's a male or a woman employer, this allows the employer to say like, hey, this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so corporate America is definitely kind of our main target right now, especially while universities are figuring out virtual school and everything like that. Um, but I think, so corporate America is something that we're really focusing on. But, you know, it's something that we have thought of in a million different markets. But 
probably the only other one that we're really planning out. I mean, there's, there's so many different, you could go retirement homes, you can go hospitals, everyone needs safety. But the other market that we're really, I guess, putting on the short list is the travel market because so many people go with companies like Beyond and I went by myself um, with this company and I'm so grateful. They were great, but you know, people go by themselves or with one friend or they're studying abroad or they're going with these companies where they don't really know the group they're with super well, but they still don't want to show that they feel unsafe around those people. So it's kind of one of those, it alleviates the, hey, track me all the time, mm-hmm. but it allows them to have that extra layer of, okay, at least I know that in a bad case of whatever it is, I feel safer when I'm traveling. Um, so definitely like travel companies, travel agents, things like that um, is a market that we're definitely trying to tap into. Awesome. So I want to shift gears a bit now and talk about women in technology. There are not a lot of women founders who scale businesses, especially tech businesses, why do you think that is? Um, well, statistically, there's like zero funding for women, which is really frustrating. And I actually have a great friend through the Vital Voices community, and she was so angry recently and said, you know, I, I just cannot believe this, how little funding there is for female entrepreneurs. And even though there's more now, it is like staggeringly low. And yeah, I'm going to repost, um, Linda, who I mentioned had sent me a study and we posted it in her show notes. I'm going to repost it. Yeah. They did a study of VC funding for women and it, it actually, I don't know if this is where you're going, but in this study they found, um, the investors were 85% more likely to ask women operational questions and they asked men strategic questions. And when you start from there, you're much less likely to give funding. It's just a fact mm-hmm. that if I'm getting into operational questions, I'm going to trip you up on something that you don't know yet. Whereas yep. if all I'm asking you is vision and strategy, you're, it's much easier to raise. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I will link out to that study. Though. Yeah, please do. Um, I think that it's something that, you know, it is, I mean, I think being a woman that also was a STEM major and that was honestly not a positive experience for me. And I'm a very strong willed individual. Like I will do something if you think that I can't. So, um, that's something that I love about my personality, but I also know that not all women are like that. And there are women with amazing ideas. And I think that, you know, think of the amount of men that are kind of shy or awkward or whatever it might be that have created these amazing companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because maybe one or two people said something discouraging, but not near as much discouragement goes towards women. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's necessarily just for men. I think it's, um, you know, from all areas, but I think that, I think the hardest thing is that you know, I I don't know the name of it. There's some type of the name for the model that this goes under, but basically, you know, men say, well, I looked at women, female and male candidates and like the male was just the better one. And that, you know, and I totally understand that. I get that. Like if that might be a, a better candidate, great. But the problem is that's what everyone is saying. And so I think that because of that, then it ends up being like, okay, well, why would, why would I even try? Well, you know, why would I even bother? And so I think there's just like, 
you know, there's all this really great, you know, there's female marches and there's this great positivity and there's so many males that are super supportive. And I am so grateful to all of the, I mean, I have some of my biggest fans and friends are guys and I am so thankful for that. But I think the problem is, is then when you get down on paper and you say, okay, there's no funding at all. And there's, you know, if someone's just Googling it, it, it's really depressing. Like I wouldn't want to start a company if I was just Googling how, you know, and you know, it's little things like I've been in accelerators and they said, Hey, here's a suggested reading list, um, with 50 books and every single author was a male. Yeah. Yeah. And to which I responded and said, Hey, these were all male authors here. Like the 10 books that my company read, um, in our campus ambassador program and they are all female authors thought you might want to like add some. And I, you know, I always say, you know, it doesn't bother me if anything, it pushes me to go further, but it's going to bother some female. And so I think it's just a matter of like, instead of just having the conversation, people just got to do something. And that's, that's hard, which I get. Well, I, I also think it goes back it goes back to early, earlier in people's lifetime. And I think this is a problem with males as well. I don't think we have enough men going into tech, believe it or not. Um, mm-hmm. I think people aren't getting encouraged at the age of, I think it's eight, nine, 10 years old is when you really have to capture people's imagination, whether they're men or women. And I think too many people don't have like, oh, this passion for design or using technology to build things. It's just not it's just not being marketed at that age. It's not until you get into college oftentimes that people are being told to think about their careers and what they want to do. And I think definitely if you look through that lens, my suspicion, and Linda talked about this on, on the podcast, and I've heard this from other women as well, for whatever reason, and, and in her generation, our, my generation, the example is women just didn't get erector sets. That was a common present that boys would get and the mm-hmm. girls would get a Barbie set. And when you're getting a Barbie set and then the guy is getting, here's an erector set, go build something. That just yep. you know, starts, to, start, starts to set things in motion. I'm curious, your perspective, um, do you see more women in your generation being drawn to tech and, and entrepreneurship? I think that I'm kind of on like the edge of right when I'm starting to see it, like think little examples. I speak at a lot of high schools and colleges, obviously about safety, but also about female entrepreneurship. And, mm-hmm. um, and I love doing that. And I love speaking for truly anyone that'll listen. And I think that, you know, I actually went back to my high school and spoke recently and they have a women in STEM club. And to me, I was like, whoa, whoa. I mean, yeah. they, that would never have existed when I was in high school. And I spoke to them and, you know, I, I mean, I basically saw myself in all of them and said, you know, it's my major was still really hard and there were still only guys and whatever it might be. But I think it was something that just seeing that was super cool. But I think also, I mean, it's, it's things like, you know, I was, I was in the chess club when I was in fifth grade and I was probably the only girl. And it was really weird for me to be in there at that time. But now, you know, it's 50, 50 and things like that. So I think it's, you're starting to see that sort of shift. And I think because of, you know, companies like Google and Facebook and these like cool tech companies, you see more people becoming interested in it because it looks like something viable and, you know, 
they are doing a really good job with incorporating females and things like that because they're so new. They don't, they don't have this blueprint from 20 years ago to go off of. They're just adapting. And so I think it's something that I'm definitely seeing a change. Um, I didn't really see that when I was in college, which is unfortunate. But then I think, you know, all of the entrepreneurship that I was involved in, in like the Adam's apprenticeship program, all this stuff, like totally saw it there. It totally made sense. But at the same time, it was funny because even I, we would be interviewing people for the next cohort and, you know, you're, I would be like so biased towards the girl, but you know, there'd be the guy that just in his childhood started like four different companies and the girl Mm -hmm. didn't. And I think that's just a, like you said, you know, like what they were given when they were younger. And, you know, I think that a lot of that has to do with, you know, who you grow up around, what kind of school you go to, like your parents, all these different things. And I think that because, you know, uh, my dad like really wanted uh, a son when I was born, I was the first born. And so he kind of raised me like, one. <laughs> so, you know, it was things like I'm super into sports and I like love college football. And I, but at the same time, you know, it was things like, I of course thought I should start a soccer camp and things like this. I was like, no girls are playing soccer. That's weird. We should just start one and things like that. But I think that, you know, stems from, because I just thought that was the norm. That's what my dad was doing and things like that. And you know, I think it's changing, but it should, it should be changing faster. And I think that it's, you know, you can publish these things and, you know, you can have amazing women leaders and all these quotes. And I think that the problem is there's, there gets to be a conversation where some people think that, you know, feminism means one thing or whatever. And then, you know, you see it, I mean, I'm also a stand-up comedian. You see it there. And there's not a lot of female comedians. That. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Surprise. But, um, but it's something that you, you see it in um, every different sector. But I think with technology specifically, is it's just not really an encouraged thing until kind of now. Like I'm seeing it in my pre-K through 12 um, school there. You know, I learned cursive and how to type and they're learning coding you know, that's, that's so cool. Awesome. Yeah. One of my and, favorite charity events I've been to is called Project Scientists. They did Connect for Charity and we played a bunch of Connect Four games and all these companies got to sponsor Connect Four um, uh, games. But they also had a group of, of younger girls, um, all different age groups come in and compete in building different projects, different tools in code or different applications in code. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the type of thing that can capture people's imagination at an early age and to drive that. So I'm curious your perspective, what can old white guys like myself do to help attract more women into the field? Do we just get out of the way because we can't become women mentors? (laughs) What do we do? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's such an interesting question. And I think this is something that you know, I work on my dad, my dad's a white guy too. And so I, um, you know, I've worked with him on this and, you know, what, what can he do and things like that. And, you know, it comes down to a lot of women, especially think that, okay, well, if I'm going to like break into the tech world, I'm going to do this or that, like I'm giving up aesthetics and fun things and the color pink and, you know, and it just seems like this bleak, dark world. And so I think it's something that making things 
not like, oh, I'm inviting women. It's just changing your stance and your being and just being an inviting person. It doesn't need to be like, okay, I am really gonna focus on females and make sure they feel welcome and safe and all this different stuff. But it's just welcoming everyone. And I think that that's a, a morals thing. And I think that, you know, women are great at collaborating. Men are great at competing. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that that is why there has been so many successful men in this world because they will compete until they get to the top and the top is like incredible. But I think that knowing that women work best together and in groups and that's not something that should be shameful. That's actually something that's really, really cool and incredible. And I think that, you know, for all males to kind of realize that working together can make females excel rather than saying like, hey, you female and you male, like go against each other and whoever is the best, great. I think it's more of, hey, why don't you guys work together and create something that's amazing and it's not riding on your job promotion. And I think that just having a welcoming and open environment for all types of people, you know, whatever they identify as is the most important. And that's something, I mean, I grew up in the South. There's, you know, a lot of different things that go on here and I don't swing one way or another, but I think it's something that everyone should just have the mindset of how can I help this person succeed? Mm -hmm. That would also make me succeed. Yeah. You know, like I think from a, you know, mentor's perspective, I think that it should be, I really want this person to do well, but also I want to see it as a feedback train because women also work really well when they can help other people. Yep. So that's what I would say. I don't know if that's uh, perfect I mean, though. No, I think, I think that's, I think that's good advice and it probably doesn't just apply to women. I think that thinking more mm -hmm. about collaboration and less about competition helps build better teams in general, yeah. no matter no matter, no matter what the uh, person is. But I think that that points to why it's important to have women on the team because there are just, yeah. my suspicion is there are certain evolutionary things that have built over tens of thousands of years that we're unaware of that have made women better at collaborating. Cause I've seen it yeah. on teams. Where women yeah. Are on, on. And I think that women also tap into empathy really well. And there's, I mean, there's been so many studies done. I mean, I'm sure only females have seen them, but there's all these really cool studies that show, you know, what happened when they added a female to the team and how it like made companies soar and all these other things. And I think that just, you know, not just saying that's a cool article, but saying, cool, let's get a female in here or whatever it might be. I mean, there's so many, and I, you know, speak from a very, very privileged, like white female. I think that that is something to be said, like, yeah, white females might be getting ahead a little bit now. And I think that it's something that it's really frustrates me because, you know, I have friends that are from all different types of backgrounds, especially in this vital voices community and seeing that they're still truly just undermined completely really frustrates me because it's not just a, okay, we're going to let like, you know, Bob's daughter in because I was in the same fraternity as him or whatever it is, you know, it should be like, Hey, this female that came from this completely different background from me and looks totally different from me is the person that will probably end up running this company in 10 years and making it way more valued. So mm -hmm. I think it's looking at everyone. I, I agree. Um, so looking back now with 
with the progress that you've made, what do you think surprised you most about the journey? Um, ooh, a lot of different things. Um, it makes dating interesting. That was an interesting surprise. Um, and so much more about the security of it. Um, yes. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I love to make sure the app is working and things like that or posting. And, um, I think also having to learn, I think this is something as a female too, having to learn how to self promote, um, is very interesting. And I think that, like I said, my generation's right on the cusp of like, that's kind of a crazy thing for a girl to be really like pumped up about what she's doing. And, um, so that's been, that's been kind of funny. Also, it's always a funny joke on dating apps when someone has like entrepreneur or founder in their bio. And so that's been funny, but I think that probably the most surprising thing is how incredible this journey is. I mean, it is really stressful and, um, I think it was really hard when I was a full-time student, but I think also it's not like I had to give up my social life completely or anything like that. But I think that the most surprising thing would be how much I've grown as a person and also to the point of how incredible, like how much my eyes have been opened to all of the different people that are working their tails off and may not even make a cent. And that has been just like so inspiring to see and also working with social impact driven companies has changed my perspective on so many different things. And I think that, you know, for me, I, I'm a very confident person, but I had no idea if I would be doing this longer than six months or, year or whatever it was. And I think that seeing the support that goes into that, especially in the entrepreneurial community has been really incredible. And just seeing how I can, you know, have a company that can make me money, but also can help people has been really, really cool. Yeah. That's definitely cool. When you can, when you can align the two of those. So. Yeah. <laughs> what, what advice would you give yourself back? Let's say one year before you finally started group knowing what you know now. Ooh, <laughs> Um, I'll, I would give myself a lot of advice because if you, that was my freshman year of college, so, um, but I, I would have needed a lot of advice my freshman year of college. Yeah. <laughs> um, starting companies just for the, <laughs> um, yeah, no people always, I didn't, I didn't drink my freshman year of college and people always ask like, Oh, is that what you said? And I'm like, no, no. Um, I was like, I wish that inspired the company, but no. Yeah. And, um, I think that my main advice would be you know, the, the, the girl that works with me, Corey Patrick, she is our head of marketing. My right hand woman literally, I mean, keeps me alive, honestly. I mean, truly, whether it's making me laugh or just helping with social media, whatever it is. And, um, I would have said, first of all, to bring her on way sooner, <laughs> but also, I don't know her, but great advice. Yeah. yeah way sooner. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, I think also, just not ever second guessing. I think it would have made things go a little faster and whether that's second guessing within the company or for example, like I was really worried that taking time off to go climb Kilimanjaro, for example, was going to like tank the company or anything like that. And that experience was one of the best experiences of my entire life. And the fact that I stressed over going and doing that at all frustrates me. So I think that, you know, just saying to just go with your gut because I think that 
women especially are really good at having an intuition about things. And so just going with my gut and probably just starting it a little sooner because uh, I really wish I could have prevented a friend getting sexually assaulted or whatever that is, but I'm glad that I can now help prevent that in the future and, you know, have that same friend help me and advise me. But yeah, I would say just trusting my gut because I, I do it pretty well, but I sometimes hesitate. And I think that just yeah. not hesitate. I mean, thinking before you act, of course, but um, not and hesitating. I, yeah, I, I think that's great advice. I think it is, to be fair to you, it's a lot harder for a 20-year-old to trust their <laughs> gut than it is a 30 yeah. or a 40-year-old. And most founders are contrary to conventional wisdom more in their 30s to 40s because they've just got so many experiences that they're... Yeah their gut can draw on. So, um, but, but I think that is still good advice. Like if, if you think something and you, if, if it's, if it follows you from high school into college, you probably should act on it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but that, not a, that's great. So I'd like to geek out a bit on the technology if you don't mind. Yeah. And, and I, I caveat this with, I realized that it's smashing boxes built some of this. So I won't get too deep, deeply into it, but if you can just speak on it, um, so how does your app work in terms of knowing where you are? You talk a lot about privacy and you kind of prevent people from knowing too, too much. So obviously that's a big role for the app to play, but how does, that, how does the app work in terms of the technology that enables that separation of privacy? Yeah, so the way that we have it work is we, with Safe Zones, we use geofencing. So that way that people, you know, can either use their current location or they can use um, an exact address and it'll just geofence a pretty small radius. So for example, if you're at a house, you know, the next door house is not going to be geofenced. Um, so that just, way- just for it, the listeners who might not be as technical, geofence is a pretty simple but powerful concept where- an iOS developer can draw a circle around a point and say, if anybody, if, if a user crosses into this, send an fire off an event, and then the app developer can catch that event and then do something in response, right? Am I summarizing yeah. it roughly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that the way I, I've dumbed it down to friends is, um, and you can actually kind of see the technology explained almost when you're setting a safe zone, because when you press current location, it, it builds a little circle um, in exactly what would be the safe zone. So that can kind of help um, explain it, I guess. But so that's how we, that's literally the only location that we do, obviously, except for when someone sets off an alert and that'll just ping in just for that alert. So it's not tracking it all the time. It's not draining your data or draining your battery, which was something that one of my best friends actually wrote as one of her recommendations. She said, my phone dies all the time. And I also run out of data literally all the time. And I can't have that be happening. And so that was something we really focused on. So we've tested it so that you can use such a small amount of data. And this is like what I geek out on, I guess. But there's such a small amount of data that we were able to set off an alert at a Beyonce concert, which um, literally shut down the triangle area and had traffic backed up, I'm pretty sure 60 miles. I mean, it was the most absurd. I mean, people didn't get to the concert because it was that crazy, that many people. And it was our stadium tour. So there was a lot of people, you could not send a text, you could barely get a phone call through. And so, and we were able to still use the app. And so we, 
really focused on being able to use it. So if someone's, you know, on the New York subway or they're at a sporting event or they're at a concert or things like places where you would really want to feel safe, um, it uses that little bit amount, um, amount of data. Um, but yeah, so essentially with the developers, like probably the, the coolest geeky parts are the, um, the geofencing, the tiny, tiny amount of data that we use. And then the push notifications are kind of what keep people engaged with it and keep the app sort of running um, without just running constantly in the background. Yeah. So that's interesting because I've done some geo based applications and they do, they can, not only do they burn your battery quickly or, and your data, but they burn <laughs> you like the phone gets really hot. Cause yeah. The yeah. Processor gets really hot when it's doing that. And so I think that that's, I think that's really smart that you use the geo fences um, but I think it's even more smart because it's really hard to change customer behavior and letting mm -hmm. the app automatically update your status removes a lot of friction. Um, how did you know you wanted the app to work this way? Because it's a really smart design decision to do that. A lot of first time app builders will think more about make the user do things, but the best apps always figure out how do I reduce the friction? How do I make it automatic? How do I make it that I don't want you to have to text me every time you get home, but it should just automatically text me. Was that a conscious decision that you made or did you just luck into that? Yeah, it was um, very conscious. So um, a guy that was on the project originally is one of my good friends, Edward. He introduced me to the term sticky, which a lot of um, business professional use business professionals use about, you know, having an idea and having a company or a brand that sticks and not just a really cool idea. And so he and I kind of talked about it in the beginning of, okay, like what's going to be sticky? Like what is our generation? You know, obviously our generation is known for being on our phones. I mean, in a negative connotation and all this stuff. And so but what we also realized and what probably a lot of people not in our generation wouldn't realize automatically is that we are all on our phones a lot, but we're also actively trying to not be on our phones. I mean, you see all the time millennials or Gen Zs doing these like social media detoxes or giving social media up for Lent or, you know, taking time away from their phone or doing hikes for a weekend, things like this, where they're just trying to detach from their phones because they're on them so often. So we wanted a concept that allowed people to depend on technology for safety but didn't feel like they were on their phone the whole time. So this kind of gave it the best of both worlds that their technology was keeping them safe, but they weren't on their phone because it does it automatically. So, yeah. Well, that's brilliant. So have you heard of the book um, or read the book Hooked by Nuriyal? I actually have not. Okay. Well, it's, he kind of wrote the playbook for how to make addictive apps. And it's mm -hmm. part of the reason that people have to do detoxes and have to, but, but it turns out there's a real science um, to building apps that people get addicted to for all the good and bad that, that comes with that. Uh, one of the concepts in this book is that successful apps need ways to trigger usage of the apps. Um, one of the beautiful things about your geofencing safe space approach is that not only does it automatically happen, but it triggers usage of the app. I can get ostensibly a notification, a push notification saying Nina just walked into a safe space or Nina just left and is on the way or is ready to go. Um, external triggers that fire off at random intervals turn out to be one of the most powerful aspects of addictive apps. And this, you know, Nuri all in this book points out, this is why social media platforms work as well as they do because there's all sorts of triggers that are just happening whether you want to initiate it or not that just remind you to get on your app 
-hmm. And that's the ideal world. You want users generating triggers. Um, and so again, it sounds like you haven't read the book. Was this a concept that you guys understood and appreciated when you were designing the app or is it just a nice, maybe <laughs> bad side effect? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we wanted something that kept people engaged. So, I mean, we have things also, you know, that were super conscious, like on Fridays and Saturdays, it'll say, I'm pretty sure it's at 6 PM. It'll say out and about, you know, make sure to update your safety status or whatever. There's like five different messages that we have that'll just send out to people that have the app downloaded. So we definitely have always thought about, you know, just making sure people stay engaged and things like that. And I think that, you know, we don't want there to be any barriers. So for example, if someone creates a group and they don't have any contacts that has the app, but they add people from their contacts, it'll send a text to those people and say, Hey, join my group, things like that. You know, we were just like setting, not traps. That's a horrible way to put it, but like setting little traps, um, to, you know, keep people engaged because, you know, our primary goal is to make people feel safe while also doing things that they like to do. So, it, it's something that we also focus on on our social media, you know, making sure that people are checking in. And obviously during quarantine, originally we were like, oh my gosh, we should take down the push notifications on Fridays and Saturdays. It's so insensitive. I mean, no one's out and about, but now it's become something of, you know, we can kind of draw on that and make it funny and <laughs> stuff like, because it's one of those things where you can look forward to going out and about again, but also it's something that our company is meant to be fun and funny and lighthearted and not something that you're associating with, you know, curing world hunger, but also it's something that's doing a great thing, but also part of normal life. It's part of, you know, you don't have to be curing cancer, curing world hunger, you know, curing COVID. COVID. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, um, you don't have to be doing one of those things to also be safe. You can just be a regular person. And so that was something, I mean, especially I was like, I am a very, regular person when I created it. So that's something that we've, we've really focused on just to make sure people are engaged, but also engaged in a way that's fun. Well, you know, you, you, you may not have read Hooked, but I think you understand a lot of the premises <laughs> there. So that's great. Um, for, for me, it was really eye-opening reading the book because I, I don't think about the behavioral economics behind it. And I don't naturally think that way, but there is definitely a formula and that, that external trigger getting you to just engage with an app, but then it adds value, I think is a very, very useful way to, to get people to, to use the app. And in your case, it isn't just people going on Instagram to get more likes. It's actually improving the security of people around them. So that's yeah. really awesome. Um, can you speak a little bit to privacy and how you and the team think about balancing privacy and security? I think you hit on it earlier, but I'd like to just explore that for a couple of minutes. If you yeah, yeah, absolutely. So obviously, I mean, there's, Oh my gosh, so many privacy laws and um, they've expanded since our um, fruition. So that's something that we focus on all the time. And I actually was studying abroad in London when the whole like GDP, all that stuff started coming out in um, the UK. And also a reason we started focusing on study abroad students um, while I was studying there. But we realized, you know, there is no need to know that John Smith from Cary, North Carolina, that's 18 years old, set off an alert. We just want to see, hey, there was alert set off at 6 a.m. So we really focused on, okay, what is the minimal amount of data that we can track and also have this be useful to universities, employers, whatever. And so we 
literally the only things that we'll ever collect are when and where alerts are being set off and like maybe the demographic of the user if that's provided. And we would never, you know, keep an email or keep a phone number or anything like that. When when it's when it's verified, because when you go in the app, you have to verify your phone number, you log in with Facebook, Google, Apple, whatever. But we verify the phone number for your security purposes, not so we can save it. So we really focus on the user and, you know, no one can just jump in your group. They have to be invited and you have to accept that. And if someone requests your location within the app, which can be done and shared for 10 minutes, then that request has to be accepted. It's not just automatic. And I think that that's something that we've really focused on and we you know, kind of have that upper hand against other safety apps because, you know, it is something you can use with not just your best friends. You can use it with people that may be new acquaintances because, you know, you can feel safe with them. But also just from like a back-end perspective, we're not going to save that stuff. We don't have a use for it. We're not planning on selling your data. And, you know, we just want to improve safety. That's that's our goal. That's where we stand. Only time we're going to take your email is if you sign up for the newsletter. So that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of where we stand with it. Very cool. Um, we've seen a temporary shift in attitudes towards privacy as a result of the COVID pandemic, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, as someone in this world of privacy, do you think this will lead to longer term changes in what consumers are willing to trade off in terms of privacy? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen it just in the past couple of years with everything that happened with like Facebook and all this other stuff. And I think that, you know, just being transparent is the most important thing for so many companies. And I think that especially during this whole crisis right now, the, the most successful business plan right now is being transparent. And if that's saying, hey, like we need your help to keep the company alive or whatever it might be for a specific company, that's what you should do. But I think that, you know, in terms of privacy, this woman that I actually interviewed the other day for a feature series we're doing right now said, we're asking them what safety means to them. And something that she had pointed out is, you know, as women, we always think about like negotiating our space. We also, we always think about like, is that person too close to us? Or why is that person near us? You know, what time of night, all those kinds of things. And now it's a person, but it's guy. You could say guy. We're creepy. Not necessarily in New York. You would be amazed, <laughs> but, um, but because uh, it might be just the store, but, um, but now in COVID-19 times you're seeing, and this is totally quoting her. Um, I won't take credit for this amazing idea, but in COVID-19 times now, like men are also having to say, Ooh, why is that person near me? Like, don't get within six feet and having to negotiate space. And so I think that the fact that that whole idea is globalized and in everyone's head is, um, I think something, and I had not even thought about that until she said it. And so her name is Vix Raytano. I'll give her credit, but, um, but it's something that I think that will be advantageous because I think men who we have surveyed have always said, you know, like I want to help women feel safer. And I mean, it, alarmingly high statistics of that, obviously. And, you know, in places well, that, where that's, that's natural, right? I've got yeah. nieces that I love more than anything. We all have mm -hmm. sisters, mothers, you know, it's, it, yeah, it, it, it probably, it seems counterintuitive, but it's also pretty obvious because there mm -hmm. are, you know, women in, in, in all men's lives and they do ultimately want that, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think like guys have always wanted that. And I think that 
you know, now it's also keeping themselves safe and whether that's a health standpoint or a physical standpoint. And so I think it's just going to be an interesting sort of shift in sort of the global mindset. Mm-hmm. But um, I think we've just seen a change in the past couple of years. So I think it's I think it's just up to companies to be straightforward. And I mean, I know that a lot of times people will say, well, of course I didn't read the 45 page privacy policy. And I'll admit, I don't usually read those, but I think also, you know, there's a difference between like a company that's taking your DNA and, um, you know, us just trying to improve safety. So I think it just sort of depends, but transparency is always the best policy. Yeah, I agree with, with, with privacy. It always is. And, and I think even with security breaches, mm-hmm. it's w- the biggest problem with, with, with data breaches, in my opinion, is that the companies aren't transparent because they get slapped so hard on the wrist. And you understand why the regulators want to slap people on the wrist, mm-hmm. but then it encourages not disclosing. And the nature of security, and I would argue the nature of privacy, is that you have to have collaboration across everybody in this privacy chain. Mm-hmm. And when there are violations of privacy, it can't be, you're going, you're going to be canceled because you, you screwed up as a company. It's more, no, disclose when you make a mistake so everybody can learn from your mistake. Yep. How do we move forward? Absolutely. So, so you, you hit on this a little bit. Um, I'm curious how involved you are in startup community activities. You talked about a lot of different groups that I'm going to link to in the show notes that are women specific groups. But are you involved in the broader kind of startup community? And I, this question, I, I'm, I'm curious, you, you're based out of New York. You happen to be in Raleigh right now and you started in Chapel Hill. So I don't know which startup community you're most familiar with. but uh. Yeah, um, yeah, it's changed a lot. Um, so uh, I got to say, when I got to New York, I mean, I literally was like Googling pitch competitions because to me, I was like, I'm pitching to a whole new audience. And it is like I just started because I just moved to a whole new city. And so there there were things along the way, you know, when I was living in London, I was part of Google Campus, which was super cool. And I literally thought it was a coffee shop. That's why I walked in. That's why I became a part of it. So um, I believe it's literally in London. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Um, But in New York, there's things like Founders Live and, you know, all of these things that have actually done a really good job of transitioning to virtual. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we're, especially right now, seeing that all these startup communities can be global and, you know, national, whatever it is, because they can now be virtual. But I would say... I'm, t- I'm easing into the New York startup market just because um, it's, I, I feel like I just got there. Um, but it's then, enormous. I mean, it's, it's hard. Yeah, it's large. Like, we're, we're, you're from Chapel Hill slash Raleigh. I'm from the Charlotte market. It's hard to even compare what's going on in North Carolina oh, yeah. to what's happening in New York. It's, it's, I mean, in, in, our, in our smaller markets, that's one of the big benefits I think that we have. Is mm-hmm. It's six it's less than six degrees of separation it's degrees to get to anybody in any of these markets in new york that just doesn't exist because it's enormous yeah i mean absolutely i would say that you know a lot of my connections have been oh this person either now lives in chapel hill but they lived in new york and they have all these connections or whatever it might be and that kind of like helps the the startup world but i think that the cool thing with startups is a lot of startups and a lot of startup founders have either 
already had like four companies because they're serial entrepreneurs and they have a million and one connections or whatever it is. And that's been really helpful. But I think that also because I am really focused on Southeastern schools and that was our original focus, I'm much more plugged into kind of the Southeastern and Raleigh, North Carolina startup community. Um, but I'm definitely trying to tap in. I think I'm, I'm much more involved in the female New York startup um, community, but I think with things like Founders Live and um, some other programs, I mean, I just kind of went to random events for a couple of months just to network with people. But um, yeah, I would say that, I mean, there's things, you know, on meetup and things like that that I've gone to, but I'm not fully plugged in, but I don't really know what would signify fully plugged in anyway. <laughs> No, it's hard because when you're at the stage that you are, you have to spend more time on your own company. Than, than yeah, company. yeah, exactly. And there's a balancing act. So you, you mentioned Founders Live and I'll, I'll look them up and link to them in the show notes. Are there any events either in person or virtually that that you recommend beyond the ones that you've already talked about? In, in Charlotte, for instance, we have a great one called Pitch Breakfast that everybody goes to. It's a pitch competition that happens the second Wednesday of every month in two different locations and uh, it's a great one. Are there any of those in New York or in Chapel Hill or virtually that you Yeah, I mean, so in Chapel Hill at UNC, they do the Carolina Challenge, which is honestly a really incredible thing. And I did it for two years. Yeah, two years. Um, and they- called again, I'll link out to that. The Carolina Challenge and it's through the Entrepreneurship Center at UNC. and they do stuff that's really great. And so does launch Chapel Hill. Um, so I would say both of those would probably be my recommendations. North Carolina was, I just wasn't really as plugged in in Raleigh I, because I was living in Chapel Hill. Sure. Um, but I will say in New York, yeah, Founders Live is like one that I've heard of and it's, it's very relaxed, which is nice. But in terms of like workshops, things that, that have been really, really, really helpful, Girl Boss is actually their conference, which was, and I know I talked about it earlier, is completely virtual this year and it's global. And I don't really know what that'll be like, but they do incredible stuff. And so I think that that's one that's just always a great one to note down. And then I think also Female Founder does a million and one things and you have to apply to be in the Female Founder Collective, but it's so worth it and they do like an annual workshop that's in new york and then they've been doing virtual stuff for us recently and i know i talked about that earlier but yeah those would probably be my recommendations i can't really there's not really anything that i'm super plugged into workshop wise um besides those but yeah launch chapel hill is always doing really cool stuff they do like cohorts and things like that and they're so for nice it, too for what it's worth you've given me like five times as many things as the next most that anybody has given so. <laughs> oh good i like to i like to help people out even if i wasn't like super involved if they were really nice to me and encouraging of my brand that that goes a long way for me so i agree i agree well look nina this this has been great i'm really excited for you and your progress and i'm gonna have to have you on after you finally go back to that round of funding and get that wrapped up <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sharing your story with the listeners so much yeah thank you so much for having me all right. Cheers. Have a good one. You too. Thanks.